the National Archives podcast series, Marjorie's War, Four Families and the Great War, presented by Charles Fair. This book was published earlier this year, and actually it's the story of my family in the First World War. So who was Marjorie? Well, Marjorie was my, my grandmother, and she's really the central character in this story, and she really weaves together the stories of four different families, and in those fa- four families were nine young men, my grandfather being one, three great-uncles and their siblings, um, who fought in a number of different regiments. All, this is all on the Western Front. Um, they were all, inf- all infantry, apart from one who was a, a gunner officer, and they were mainly officers. Some of them started out in the ranks, but by the end of the war, they'd all become officers. So they, it was a very sort of typical Edwardian middle-class families. Typically, they'd you know, been to public school, university. They'd been working, for example, in the city, or my grandfather was a schoolmaster. That, that kind, kind of job. So Marjorie is, is the sort of central character. I knew her, um, but she died when I was, I was 10, so I had some you know, now distant memories of her. It, and it's a story that I didn't really know about until about 20 years ago, when I started discovering some letters in my parents' house, and letters that my grandfather had written to my grandmother. And we dug around, actually, there turned out to be quite a lot more than just a, the few bundles I found initially. And in fact, in total, from my part of the family and the other branches of the family, my cousins and so on, we ended up with over 800 letters. Um, it was actually a huge volume of, of stuff. I mean, it was over 400,000 words by the time we transcribed it. We also had lots of photographs, too. Two of them were keen photographers, and they'd taken very good records of their battalions, the Queen's Second Royal West Surreys and the 11th South Lancashire's, the Pioneer Battalion. Unfortunately, they, those two weren't... We didn't have many letters surviving, but we did have bits of diary. So that's a huge mass of source material that I was actually, I think, very privileged to, to find. And the, the challenge then was, how do I turn this into a story? Just by going through the letters, I could work out what a lot of the story was. But the thing that, one of the things I really badly needed was context. Um, you know, I obviously knew that my grandparents got married and you know, that they had, had had descendants. You know, the outlines of the story I knew, but the letters themselves only tell you, the letters and photographs only tell you so much. And this is one of those um, two photographic collections. It's one of the best records of a pioneer battalion in the, in the Great War in t- photographic terms. So the archive had a lot of stuff which is actually coming out in another book uh, in 2014 on the 11th South Lancs, the Pioneers. Um, there aren't many good photographic records of pioneer battalions around, and we were lucky to have some of pioneers. So one of the challenges I had to, to do was take these letters. For a start, we have to put them into, a, into a, some coherent narrative, and that, again, was a challenge because you've got lots of stories going in parallel. How do you weave them together in something that tells the story of the, of the Great War, but also the stories of the, in, of the individuals? As I said, my grandmother was really the central character, but I needed a lot of additional research to, to really sort of add flesh to the bones of the story, to really understand the context. And National Archives was, for me, a particularly crucial resource. I spent a lot of time here, particularly in the 1990s and more recently, just you know, checking everything. You, when you go through letters like that, you find a lot of references to, say, trench raids or the weather being terrible. And actually, one of the things that you need to do is go and check this stuff. And the sources here, I think, are terrific. One of the, the, the main sources that I used is the, the War Diaries, WA95. It's something that certainly when I started using it, uh, I spent hundreds of pounds photocopying stuff. Um, so that was before, before you could bring digital cameras in and before you could download any of it from the internet. 
but that was the thing which really helped me to work out where these letters were written from, because with that volume of stuff, I you know, want to be able to say where people were at any given moment. Um, and that's something we, we've done in the book. We put in where they were written from, or at least as close as we can get to, based on what the War Diaries is telling us. Captain Dodgson, who, was, who in fact died four days after, three days after the armistice in a three casualty clearing station um, at Cordray, and actually going to the three CCS war diary, cross-checking it, his, his uh, record of his death um, actually appeared there. Um, so the war diaries were actually a critical resource for me, so I'm thrilled to see they're now coming online and ever more affordable than, than they once used to be. The other thing that was also essential was also the service records, not just the, the nine guys I talk about in the book, um, but a lot of the, the bit part characters they refer to, some of their friends and colleagues. And the, the two main sources, obviously, are WA339 and WA374, depending on the territorial or otherwise. So going into those and just digging out the service record can give you a lot of useful additional information um, you know, about place of death that they died, you know, things like the height, colour of hair, all that kind of stuff. So one of the things that we did was actually just checking out all the characters that appear in the letters that are referenced. Also other ranks as well. There are references, for example, to you know, my grandfather's Batman, or you know, because every officer in those days they had their, their, their Batman, uh, their, their servant. Um, so one of, the, one of the other ranks who had helped them with their, um, with their duties and make sure their personal administration was in order. And actually being able to look up records of those men that they had close working relationships with was particularly important. So one of the things that we, we did was we footnoted a lot of this, this stuff. So that, that those, obviously, WA363, WA364, I think, um, which uh, I do remember going back in the dim and distant past using the old microfiche to do that. So those are probably the two, the two I used most. One other one that actually turned out to be very useful when cross-checking things was, oddly enough, Haig's diaries. And I know Haig is the commander-in-chief, um, as he was for much of the war. Uh, may have seemed a dim and distant figure. But actually, there's one of the things that surprised me was the number of references that these young officers made to contact with, with senior officers like Haig. And there are several occasions in the book of when Haig and senior, other senior officers come around to inspect them and so on. And just cross-checking with Haig's diary, as well as those accounts written by other senior officers, was really useful. This is two examples here. One of the the officers, as I said, was in the gunner, and, and they referred to being inspected by Haig. And actually, he, Haig's diary actually just gives a paragraph about his visit to the 47th Division Royal Field Artillery. Uh, another example here was um, my great-uncle refers to Haig coming along to watch them training. This is before they went into um, an, an attack up on, in, in part of the 30th campaign. Um, and then he gives a really, Haig gives this really good account of what the division was actually doing um, in its training area behind the lines. Those weren't the only ones. There were plenty of other sources, like one that was particularly good was my two letters my grandfather had written that were in the cabinet records, um, CAB series, um, which is another, I think, unused, to my mind, quite an unused source, CAB 45. There are a lot of um, accounts that were written by people to the official historian. So when the official historian was drafting his accounts for like, the multi-volume official history you may have seen with the, with the big, the red bindings. There are lots of, for each volume, there's uh, several boxes of correspondence of accounts that people had made when they were commenting on the first or, or early drafts of those books. And one of those, I actually found two letters that my 
great, my grandfather had written to the official historian commenting on, on, on one of these drafts, which is one of those, it's one of those things you, you come here and you, you see something that one of your family has written. It's one of those moments that really takes your breath away. So that's, that's really the, back, the background and, and, and to give you a bit of, bit of an idea of the work involved. I'm going to say a little bit about the story. I don't want to tell you the, the whole thing because that spoils the plot. But as I said, my grandmother was the, the central character. She was 24 at the outbreak of war. She spent a bit of time in 1915 serving as a VAD, um, as, a, as a nurse in, in this country. I don't think she particularly agreed with us. She later went into being a school teacher. Her sister Esme spent much of the war as a VAD in a, um, the, the war hospital in Reading. And her mother, uh, who was a, by all accounts a very formidable woman, she also served as a VAD um, and also served on various tribunals as well um, for people who were conscientious objectors. Um, and it, Marjorie is a central character because of her relationships with the, the other families. Now, she had two brothers, Humphrey and Reggie. He, he initially joined up the Stockbreakers Battalion of the, of the Royal Fusiliers, the 10th Battalion. That, and that was one of a Kitchener's battalion of men who'd all served, who, who all worked in the city. And that was actually, in, in many ways, the first Powell's Battalion that was, that was fully formed. Um, one of the few that I think people would associate with London. So they're all stockbrokers, they're all terribly overqualified to be private soldiers. So he, he joined up with a load of colleagues from, from work and became very quickly a corporal in that battalion. He, he later went on and got commissioned into the Queen's. His, his younger brother, Reggie, had just left school in, in uh, August 1914, July 1914, age 19. He couldn't get into the army initially. He tried to get in, but his eyesight was a bit poor. He had glasses. And he tried eight times to get in, kept, kept getting rejected because of of his eyesight. Eventually he got into a private motor, motorbike company which then got taken over by the Army Service Corps and although he was the last to get in and this was early December uh, 1914 he was actually the first member of the family to get out to the Western Front and he was out there um, just before uh, on New Year's Eve 1914. Now my grandmother as well as those two young men who were brothers she was in a the outbreak of war, I, I think we'd call a pretty committed relationship um, with Toby Dodgson, um, who came from a nearby village at um, Bovingdon in Hertfordshire. Um, Toby also worked in the city. Uh, he worked for a family stockbroking firm. He had two younger brothers, Philip, who served in the Gunners, in the Royal Artillery, and Guy, who actually served in the 1st Battalion of the Hertfordshire Regiment. Um, Guy had also just left school that uh, summer of 1914. Uh, all three, three of those boys, they joined up within a few weeks of the war breaking out. They were all August and September um, enlistments. Toby and my grandmother were in a, a very serious relationship um, and the letters that we've got, and some of them are, are they're pretty passionate stuff, for the, certainly for, for the times. Um, and those, those were the days when people obviously wrote letters to each other on a daily basis. Obviously, people didn't have email or text and so on. And we're very lucky to have this really rich source that gives a, a, a very intimate look at a, a relationship. And some of the, the stuff she writes... I think she's probably pushing the boundaries of, of what young women did in 1916. So, in, in the context of, sort of middle-class Edwardian morals, um, this, this is what she writes in a diary, which obviously wasn't, wasn't meant for, um, for, for a wider readership at the time. Um, and they actually went away. He, he had a leave just before he, Toby went overseas. And this is May 1916. Um, this is, in fact, his very last leave um, before he went, he went to France. Um, May 1916, and they, they actually went away in, 
May 1916, and she writes this, Toby arrived in a little car just as we were starting supper. I rushed out and met him. It was good to see him and looking so splendidly well and sunburnt. We soon got my box and drove down to Mrs Moore's house, long down, where I had taken rooms. We took the boxes up and then went into his room where he kissed me hard again and again. And I said, there, is that better? It was. He had bought me such a present, a whole box full of undies, most beautiful ones. I had to try on these when we went up to bed. And then, best of all, he came to my bed with me. I won't go on, but, um, you know, for... for middle-class Edwardian morals in 1916, she was probably, probably pushed the boundaries. And that was the leave at which they, they actually got engaged. Uh, and they planned to get married on his next leave, which would have been um, in the autumn of 19, uh, 1916. We're also lucky, as well as his letters and her letters to him, we've got diary excerpts like the one I read out, um, and a few photographs. Marjorie was quite a keen photographer, so we're lucky that she took a number of photographs of Toby and his battalion, actually, as they as they, the very day that they went off to France in August 1915. Um, and she did something that I think it would be hard to do today, given you know, current security. She went down, she followed the battalions at March the station, uh, took photographs of them, and went right in with them almost up to the train. So his letters are wonderf wonderfully rich and detailed account of trench life. Um, one of the things that I often found that they did is, is they referred to things they'd read in the newspapers. Um, or other things that, they, that they'd seen. Or, and, and she would often send newspapers out to him too. Um, and it was very useful also to go and check back those things. So I made a few visits to the, the British Library at Collindale. Um, so newspapers were another very useful source that, that I was able to dig into. The other person I need to introduce is uh, Charles Fair. He, this is my grandfather. At this point in time, he has no direct connection with my grandmother. Um, but I introduced him because he joined up also at the outbreak of war. In fact, he joined up on the 10th of August, went into the Honourable Artillery Company. Um, he'd been to university at Pembroke College, Cambridge, um, and he joined up into the Honourable Artillery Company on August the 10th. And in fact, he spent 47 days there before he was commissioned into the London Regiment, um, which is one of my main research interests. Um, and obviously, being a you know, well-educated a schoolmaster, he was ideal officer material, so couldn't really turn down a commission when he was told that he ought to, his duty called and he really ought to go and get a commission instead of being in the ranks of the HAC. Um, so he, he joined the 19th London Regiment. Um, so my grandfather's letters are also, at times, um, quite richly detailed about serving the front line. Um, obviously there are limitations of, you know, given security and, and censorship, what they could say, but actually the, the war diaries and trench maps allow, allow you to fill in a huge amount of the gaps. And at one stage, he talks about um, being on one side of a valley um, with the Germans holding the other, the, the other slag heap on the other side of the valley. And it's very easy to pin that down to this place, the double crash at Luce, where we held the right-hand end, the Germans held the left-hand slag heap there. Um, now, the Somme in 1916 is really, the, in many ways, the central crux of the story. It's where all these different lines of the individuals, their storylines start to converge and cross over. Um, and it's also a battle in which all bar, in fact, all bar two of them are involved in, in, in some shape or form. Uh, the first person that goes into action on the Somme is my great-uncle, um, Marjorie's brother Humphrey, in May 1916. And Humphrey then goes, joins the battalion, and we've got a few photographs that he took actually in or near the front line. But he went over the top on the 1st of July... Um, with 
his battalion, um, and he was, was actually wounded um, a few days later on the 14th when his battalion went into high wood. Um, some of you may have read about the, the cavalry charge up towards high wood on the 14th of July, at a moment when we could possibly have taken high wood. Uh, he got wounded on that particular day and then spent a, a month out of action recuperating. The next member of the family to go into action on the Somme was Toby's, uh, Toby Dodgson, so my, my grandmother's then fiancé. Um, one of the, the other really useful sources was trench maps, and these days they're obviously a lot more available on, um, on various sources. The WFA is this really useful set of CDs that you can buy with trench maps in of the Western Front. Um, and actually being able to cross-reference those against the letters and the war diaries really enables you to pin down where things happen to, to often quite a, a tight geographical area. Now, the war diary is just a fantastically useful thing. Um, it's full of operational orders, and the, the detail allows you to work out what the, the plan was, and very often where the plan didn't co- quite come off and where things went wrong. The, and the plan was that Toby, um, in his the 8th Green Howards, he was almost a left-hand man, we know from the war diary that he would have been round about in this position. And one of the things that is really useful is, having got this information, is then to go to the ground and actually work out where things happened. Um, so I spent a fair bit of time tramping around parts of France and Belgium trying to work out where some of these actions happened. We find that... My, my grandmother finds out a few days later that she gets a telegram saying that he's missing. Um, and then eventually she gets another one confirming he was, he was killed, but the initial telegram saying he was missing, she writes in, his, in her diary after that, she just scores across for two weeks, I don't remember these days, they were awful, because she was obviously in this horrible situation, not knowing what was going on. And, you know, she does what people tend to do in that situation, she clings onto any sort of half bit of news, rumours that he may have been taken prisoner, and of course that doesn't, that doesn't come out, and eventually um, she gets this letter, 13th of September, in fact, goes to his mother saying that, um, that he had actually definitely been killed. Um, her story then goes a little bit, little bit quiet, but I then tend to pick it up with my grandfather. My, my grandfather goes into action on the Somme at High Wood. So my great-uncle attacks High Wood on July the 14th. My grandfather, with a different battalion, the 19th London Regiment in the 47th Division, then attacks High Wood two months later. And this is a successful attack with tanks where the wood is actually finally cleared and captured. So the British Army spent you know, two months attacking and trying to secure this one particular feature. Um, the other person that was particularly notable was the Reverend David Railton. Um, some of you may have come across his name before because he was the padre that came up with the idea of the unknown warrior. And Padre, padre Railton was actually the... the, the Brigade Padre for my grandfather's brigade, one for one brigade. And those of you who know the story of the Unknown Warrior will know that Railton, having suggested the story, suggested that the, the, the coffin of the Unknown Warrior was covered in a flag that had seen battle, a Union, a union flag that had seen battle. It was one that he'd used in the battlefield. So in that year that Railton had, had spent with my grandfather's brigade, that flag was almost certainly used for drumhead services at the, you know, after battle and for funerals of men that had been buried. My grandfather gives this very good account of the burial service that Railton actually, um, actually officiates at when, when they're making burials after the Battle of High Wood in, in London Cemetery there. Uh, so I think it's very likely that the Padre's flag that you, you can see today in, in 
um, in Westminster Abbey is actually the one that was actually used at that, at that service that my, my grandfather um, was at. My grandfather was at this time second in command of his battalion. He, he'd only been in the army two years at this point, but at Highwood, his commanding officer had been killed. He was second in command, um, was now acting commanding officer. So and this was at the ripe old age of 33. He found himself commanding a battle, a battalion having to rebuild it um, with some big drafts of men after the, the huge losses at High Wood. I'm going to skim through 1917 very quickly. Um, there are, at this stage, there aren't many letters from my grandmother because she's lost her fiancé, so we don't have the, the two-way writing that we get. Now, there are other letters, obviously, from my grandfather at this time, and her brothers are still out in France and writing. Um, her brother Humphrey is with, with two queens, and he is takes a, a number of really good photographs of the, the, the battlefield of the Battle of Arras, or the very sudden then near Bullicourt. Um, and this is after the Germans have retreated the Hindenburg Line, and the Germans have this scorched earth policy of, of destroying villages as they go. Um, and he takes photographs of a number of villages um, that, that, that the two queens are using. Um, so this again was just really where you know, the use of the war diaries and the trench maps is absolutely invaluable in working out where these photographs were taken. The next major offence that the family is involved in is Third Eep. Now, my grandmother's youngest brother, Reggie, um, at this point has now got a commission into the, the Hopps Regiment. So there are, in fact, two, two of the boys are now in the Hopps Regiment, both uh, Reggie and, and the youngest Dodgson brother, Guy. And the Hertfordshire Regiment are part of the 39th Division, and they're scheduled to be one of the divisions that, that takes part in the opening attack of the Third Eep campaign on the 31st July 1917. Now, we do have um, a few photographs of that. Um, the other great place that I, I used, actually, was the Imperial War Museum. Um, there were several accounts of officers there that I was able to use. Also, the, the Brotherton Library, the little collection up in Leeds, has got a really fantastic archive of First World War letters as well. Um, and those two locations actually gave me other accounts written by other officers or men in some of the battalions that, that I was writing about. And that, again, all gave a little bit more character and a, a bit more insight into understanding the letters that the, these chaps in my book were writing about. And one of his brother officers actually described the, you know, the, the occasion of the photographs being taken. Now, the first half just go into the attack on the opening day of the 30th campaign. The war diaries, uh, I think, are a fabulous resource. And I think it's really important not to look at just the battalion, if we're researching a, one battalion, but also to look above, go to the brigade war diary and also the divisional war diary because you'll find in there additional accounts. It may be there's something that pertains to the battalion that your chap was in that actually is, isn't in your battalion war diary but actually it's in the brigade or the division. One of the things that, that I like to do is actually get the operational orders and actually work out when, when things are supposed to happen. What was the plan? Of course plans go wrong but based on you know, the, the plans in the war diary you can work out exactly when things were supposed to happen on the battlefield and this gives you here all the lines of arrival and departure, different phase lines of the battle. The, the arrows give you the, 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 the directions and the axes of attack for the different brigades in, the, in that division. So armed with that information, I can go to that exact spot and find out roughly where Uncle Reggie would have crossed the Steenbeek, and that's a very prominent river if you go to St. Julian today. And we know from the accounts that actually up to this point, 10 o'clock in the morning, everything went... went went very well, it went according to plan. The trouble is at that point, because of all the rain that had happened at the opening of the Battle of Third Eep, we had out, started to outrun our artillery. We weren't able to bring up our artillery from the rear to support this 
this depth attack that my great uncle's battalion were about to make. And at this point, our artillery support was, was dropping away. And what I was able to do is reconstruct the battle based on the personal accounts and the war diaries and regimental histories and so on, and actually work out what had happened. And just by plotting this out, I used to be intelligence officer of, for an infantry battalion in the, in the Territorial Army for a while, so, so that, that explains why I have some of the squiggles here that I do. But I was able to, to plot on exactly where the Germans were, roughly estimate what their strength might have been. And one of the things that became apparent was how quickly this attack broke down. The men, they advanced across the Steenbeek at 10 past 10, exactly on schedule, but within an hour or so, the attack had broken down completely. Isolated pockets of men had managed to get up into some of the German trench lines, the, the third line position. If you, if you know the ground today, some of you will know that there's a, um, there's a windmill up here. If you go to the ground today, it hasn't changed much. There's a few more greenhouses than there were, but it's a very gentle slope. But against heavy clay, wet ground, actually that gentle slope becomes a pretty major thing to get up when you've got Germans up here with uh, armed with machine guns. And that attack broke down in, in, within the space of an hour. Um, and two company, my great uncle's company, got up to a pillbox about here, or, or some of them did, um, but they were not in enough strength to hold any of the ground that they got onto. And in fact, the accounts describe that my great uncle being killed. We've got several accounts um, in the book of written by brother officers and, uh, and men in his platoon. And using the war diary and the trench maps, we're able to pin it down to where he was killed to within a f probably 100 yards. Of the, the, the location of the pillbox on the, this is the Springfield Road, and we have accounts of there being a pillbox here, which has since been removed, but of him coming out behind the pillbox, crossing the road, and then being shot by a German officer with a revolver. I'm not quite sure I believe the method of his death because people did tend to... Um, it was easy just to say he died cleanly with a bullet rather than was destroyed by a shell and there was nothing left. Um, so I don't always believe that, but actually I'm, I'm certain he was killed somewhere in this area, within probably 100 yards or so. I'm no more than that. The ground hasn't changed a great deal, as I said, apart from you know, buildings have been rebuilt and there's a few more, few more things, a um, few, few more uh, greenhouses. So the, Reggie was killed here around about 11 o'clock, uh, that's where the car was, and the battalion actually drew back with the rest of the brigade, and in fact by... By the afternoon, they were back on the start line in, in dribs and drabs, and the battalion was eventually with, withdrawn. So at this point, we're in July 1917. My grandmother's lost her fiancé. A year later, she, she loses her, her younger brother. Now, a couple of days before the battle, she'd been up to Halebury College in Hertfordshire, um, and she'd met my grandfather, who was a master at Halebury at that time, and they just got talking. as They went to a, a classical music concert and just got talking, as you do. And then they, they had this very formal exchange of letters afterwards. A few days later, he's, my grandfather's reading about the opening of the 30 campaign, and he sees the casualty list that Second Lieutenant Reggie Secretan has been killed. And he writes to him and says, I'm so sorry to hear about your brother. Um, and he writes to him this very, very nice letter. Um, my grandfather had lost his, his um, mother when he was very young. Um, he had experienced a certain amount of loss himself. And he wrote this very you know, lovely letter to my grandmother. And from that they start to see each other a bit more often. And it's one of those whirlwind romances that sometimes happens, I think wartime particularly. And within you know, three weeks later, they've, it, it's become pretty serious. In fact, they get engaged after, after about six weeks. They get married on September the 18th, 1917. So that's to give you an idea of, 
of how quickly things happen. I mean, it was less than two months uh, marriage and sub- two months relationship, and suddenly my grandmother, having been in the depths of despair the year before, had suddenly met the man of her, of, uh, of her dreams, um, or something like that. Uh, um, so in fact, they, they, they marry. Um, they have a week's honeymoon. Then my grandfather goes out to France again, and this time his letters are completely different. Up until this point, he's been writing to my grandfather to my great-grandfather once a week, usually, or maybe twice a week, but usually on Sundays. Um, being, a son of a, being a son of a preacher, he was always the uh, son, son of a vicar. He was always very good at writing home, particularly on a Sunday. And then from this point on, he's writing, obviously, to my grandmother, at least once a day, quite often twice a day, occasionally three times a day. So, uh, and obviously, he, he's now got something to really to live for. I mean, he, he, was, he, he was conf- thought he was a confirmed bachelor, uh, you can be very wrong in these things, as he, as he, as he found out. And quite to his amazement, he found himself married, and then realising that actually this war was, you know, things were somewhat different. Now he's got a wife at home. Um, so you can see the complete ch- change in the way he writes, uh, which is quite, quite remarkable. Fortunately, he gets through the war. Um, he actually only spends another four months um, out of France. He goes uh, back out to France a week after their wedding, he, he takes part in the back end of the Battle of Cambrai, where 47th Division is, is, goes into, into Bourlon Wood and is gassed. He survives that. He ends up commanding the battalion yet again. Unfortunately, in January 1918, he falls into a trench when he's doing his tour of duty as the commanding officer going around uh, just checking up on the men in, in, in the trench. He, he falls, falls down and breaks his leg, and he gets invalided home. And much to my grandmother's relief, um, he's, you know, he's done his two years out on the Western Front by that point, lucky to have got through it with only a broken leg, to be honest. So, you know, the, the story then is a, bit, is a bit quieter in 1918. Some of the other, the other brothers, um, I'm not going to go into, into all the detail, but they do take part in the March Retreat, particularly the Pioneers. Um, that's another family I haven't even talked about here. Uh, the 11th South Lanks, those, those brothers go through the March Retreat. Toby's brother, the fiancé's brother, was in the, in, the, in the Gunners. He goes right the way through uh, the 100 days, and his letters go on into, right into May 1919. So it's quite a change. You can see why my grandmother is really the central character of the story. She's engaged to one, brother of two others, loses her fiancé, and then meets and marries my, my grandfather after World War Romance. Um, the letters, the story doesn't really end there. There's quite a lot in the book about the, the aftermath and follow-up. Um, my grandmother never forgot her fiancé. And one of the remarkable things is that the photograph, uh, a photograph of, hi- of him hung in my grandparents' house throughout the period of my grandparents' marriage. Um, you know, he, my grandfather died in 1950, and he never begrudged the fact that, that she had a fiancé's photograph there. It was very, um, I think, kind-hearted of him. Um, he knew how important that Toby had been to her. And he, Toby's mother had actually gone out to France in 1919 and tried to find his, his grave unsuccessfully, but what she did do is put this little memorial down near the spot where he fell. And this is one of the very few private memorials to individuals that you'll find on the Western Front. There's only about... Uh, 40 individuals commemorated in, in this way. Um, he's also commemorated on Tietvar Memorial to the Missing, uh, because his body was initially, the paperwork didn't add up. He appears on the Tietvar Memorial, but actually his body was found, because we, we knew his grave. In fact, he is buried in Sarah Road, number two cemetery. Toby um, actually also has his battlefield cross. She, when his mother went out there in 1919, she did collect up his battlefield cross, the one that the Graves Registration Unit had put up. She writes in a letter about how cross she was that his cross had been discarded um, in, in a pile. She was really angry with them. She also got 
her youngest son, Guy, I mentioned in the first half, which is, and I showed you right at the beginning, that excerpt from Third Casualty Clearing Station, Wadari. He died four days, three days after the armistice, November 14th, and she also obtained his cross. If you go to Salisbury Cathedral today, um, you'll find these two crosses actually in the cloisters there at, at Salisbury. Um, she'd actually moved, moved down there in 1916. She'd also remarried, which complicates things a bit as well at that point. The third fatality um, of the four that appear in the book is, is of course, my grandmother's younger brother, uh, Reggie Secretan, with the Hertfordshire's, as, as I explained, the Hertfordshire's were destroyed in that battle. Um, in fact, they lost about 75% of the men who went over the top in that attack were, were killed, uh, wounded or missing. And in fact, most of the, many of the bodies were, were lost because the mud in that particular early stage of, of the 30th campaign was, was pretty bad. He must have disappeared in a shell hole and his body was never found. So he appears on the Menin Gate. Um, and my, my great-grandmother went out to France. She went out several times, actually, and the, the one or two accounts of her just going to France trying to find families that she stayed with. And this is one of the lady, ladies, the families that my... my great-uncle had been billeted with, um, and she went round, she gave some of them roses, she was keen on, keen on roses, um, and she, she recounts some of those in, in, in the book. Um, and she was also present at the opening of the Menin Gate in 1927, when Phil Marshall Plumer famously says, he is not missing, he is here, and, and put his arms out. Um, we've got her, the card, the invitation she had of, 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 as the mother of one of the missing of the Menin Gate to, to that event. Um, there's one very final twist uh, to the story. My, my grandmother retired, well, my grandparents retired to the village of Hinksworth in Hertfordshire, uh, up near Hitchin, in North Hearts, um, in 1946, um, when my grandfather retired from Haleybury College. And after my grandfather died, she, she got even more keen on, on gardening. Um, and one of the people she got to know locally was a guy called Jack Harkness. And some of you, if you, if you like gardening, will know about roses. And the Harknesses are one of the major sort of growers of, of roses in this country. And after she died in 1976, um, he named, Jack Harkness named a rose after the Marjorie Fair, um, which is a little pink rose, flowers about so big, it's a you know, bush rose. I have to admit, I'm not very horticultural myself. But it actually did very well um, in various exhibitions in 1977, 78, that sort of time. Um, it got the first prize in in this particular one, International Rose Trials in Denmark. In fact, it was very popular in, in France. The city of Paris bought 1,500 at one point. And when I was living out in Paris in the mid-1990s, I actually found a load of them growing in the, uh, near the Chateau de Vincennes in the park there. And when I started researching the story, um, I went out uh, with my father in summer of 1992, uh, one of my earlier battlefield tours, and we went to find her fiancé's grave. So his body was found. It's buried at Seine Number 2. And we thought to ourselves it would be nice to get one of my grandmother's roses planted at his grave. We then went, um, a day or so later, we went to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, which is another really great source, actually, obviously well worth looking up online if, you've, if you're looking up fatal casualties. We went to the War Graves Commission headquarters at Beran near Arras, and we got talking to one of the people there and said, were there any chance of, of, that, that we could do this? And he said, well, you should go and talk to Harkness because they supply the roses to the Wargraves Commission. Uh, and so what the Harkness family did is they sent one of these roses, um, and they said to be planted on grave such and such in the cemetery. A year later, Dad and I went out, and we found my grandmother's rose blooming happily beside um, Toby's, Toby's grave. 
This podcast was recorded on the 1st of November 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved.